Now I want to get back to this series on where is my honor in terms of the definition of the Almighty. <clears throat> Last time we spent the whole sermon on the subject of Balaam and Satan and through Balaam trying to prove that Satan is Almighty and Balaam trying to work things around so that he could discredit the Almighty and discredit Israel for the sake of money. Uh, but God would not be mocked, and he went so far as to speak through an animal to the man and have him ludicrously speak back. And God showed that he is almighty there, that he can do things people simply cannot do. Today I want to go to the book of Job. <clears throat> uh, what interested me about the book of Job is when I was studying the word almighty in the scripture, I found that out of the 57 mentions of the term all, the Almighty in Scripture, 57 times, 31 of them are in the book of Job. Now that's a bit of an overload if you try to average it out. 31 out of 57 are in the book of Job. So if we're going to discuss the Almighty, I think we have to certainly consider the book of Job. Now, I'm not going to go through each of those 31 times that that's mentioned, uh, but I do want to get an overview and present some things about it. But let's go back to the beginning of this story. I think we're fairly familiar with it, but to get it in mind so that we might see the beginning and end, and end at least of this story with a bit in between. There was a man in the land of Utes whose name was Job. This, I say Utes instead of us, as you might, because I believe it was near here in the land that the Utes of Utah now claim. Anyway, his name was Job, and that man was upright, perfect, or mature, and one that feared God. Here is a man who did fear God and hated evil. So a man of upstanding character, upright, goodly in character, or perfect as the King James says, and he had seven sons and three daughters, and it mentions all of the greatness of the man, the greatest of all the men of the East, and his sons went and feasted in their houses, and then all kinds of trouble came, you understand all that, uh, his animals were wiped away, his children were wiped away, and finally his health was taken away. Let's go down to chapter 2. Job was in a terrible state of mind now, and he just wished he had never been born. In chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God, that means angels here, came to present them themselves before the eternal, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the eternal. So Satan still had access to God's throne, even as he does today. He goes before God's throne now and accuses you and me daily and points out our sins before God, and it's kind of a pain in the neck. And that will happen until God casts him down for the last time very shortly now, and he'll come and persecute the church. And the Eternal said to Satan, From where do you come? And he said, From going back and forth through the earth, walking up and down in it. So he spent his time, for the most part, down here, because he had been given, been given dominion over the earth, and uh, overseeing that which he had charge of. 
But he still liked to go before God's throne and spread his nastiness there, and God tolerates it and has up to this point. So God initiated a conversation. The Eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect man and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil? Now how can you get any better than that? Those are all wonderful qualities, aren't they? And God was able to say to Satan, have you seen this? There's one of these people. They're pretty rare, but there is one. I'm sure that Job had noticed, I mean Satan had noticed Job, but he probably stayed away from him for the most part because it says if you draw near to God, Satan will flee from you. Well, Satan does not want to be around righteousness. It's when does Satan affect us the most, brethren? It's when we are in negative attitudes, wrong places, doing wrong things, or thinking wrong things, is when Satan is able to influence us to do even worse, or think even worse. When we are close to God, we don't generally have too many problems with Satan. So I presume that was the case with Job as well, based on other scriptures. But God said, hey, have you noticed? I want you to take a look at, in other words. Here, focus, Satan. You think you've got the world by the tail. What about this guy? I think was kind of the sense of this. Satan answered the Eternal and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. But put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. He said, all right, go ahead, you do that, but just don't take his life, verse 6. And his wife jumped on him as well in verse 9. And then his three friends heard of all this in verse 11, and names them. And they came to mourn with him, and when they did see him, he was unrecognizable because of all the boils and everything. And they sat there with him for seven days without saying a word because of his grief. So put yourself in this position. What if you're doing good and doing upright and you think everything's fine in your life maybe? And then all this kind of stuff comes down on your head. Sometimes we get discouraged and frustrated over little things that go wrong in our lives. Not really big deals, but they're uncomfortable or unhappy or uh, not funny to us. And they seem like tremendous trials and troubles. And yet none of us have ever faced the loss that this man faced. Everything he had, children, animals, wealth, home, even his marriage relationship, didn't take his wife away, but she turned against him. So everything was pretty bad here. So then we go through a period of time where these men try to figure out what's wrong with Job. Why did all this happen to you? And they examine his psyche up one side and down the other, and they couldn't get through to him. No matter what they tried, they couldn't get through to him. Notice in chapter 32, So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. How do you tell a man who thinks he's right, 
who thinks everything he does is right, who considers his opinion right, who is right no matter who is in the room, how do you deal with someone like that? How do you get through? How do you help them see the problems that they do have? Because every one of us has the very basis of our nature, self-righteousness. We want to be right. We like to think of ourselves as right. We prefer to think of everyone else as wrong, and we are right, no matter the circumstance. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm a sinner, or I don't do everything right, or sometimes I'm wrong, or I'm a terrible, dirty, rotten, filthy sinner and probably the chiefest of sinners. It's easy for us to acknowledge and say those things, but sometimes it's very hard for someone to point out any of those imperfections or those areas where you may lack or where we sin. It's easy to say, I'm a sinner. It's very difficult to admit when somebody brings it to you what your sin is or even accept that it might be there because we have an image of ourselves that we want to protect. And we will go to great lengths to protect that and we will never admit, if we can help it, that we are wrong about something. That is at the very crux of human nature. Now we may have very deep inferiority complexes. We may truly, deep down, feel inferior, and that is probably a true emotion because we all are. But then recognizing that on whatever level we're willing to admit it, we try to cover that. Did you ever see a cat trying to cover something that wasn't really good? They'll go at great lengths to scratch dirt over something that isn't good. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But we're kind of like those cats. We try to hide what is really there. So we spend our lives developing an image. And any time somebody attacks or looks into or tries to help us see what we might still lack, we fight it because it is taking apart that which we have so carefully cultivated. It's really a cover story, if you will, for what's inside. And we don't want our cover blown. So we do everything we can to look good, even though we will say, I'm not good. You see, that is politically acceptable. No one is going to say, I am perfect, are they? No, that's part of the image, is to be willing to admit I have problems, but let's not get specific here. We are masters of deceit. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. That's just the way we are. Now these three fellows tried and tried and tried 
Now, they didn't have much to work with in Job's case because he was truly a righteous man. <clears throat> but they understood the principle that if God brings trouble upon you, then there must be a trial, a test, a chastening, especially a chastening here, involved. So they tried to find problems with Job, and it was difficult. Now, Eliphaz probably began to get fairly close to the truth. But let's notice in chapter 32 a little more. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. What it boiled down to is he knew his conduct, and I don't know, it doesn't say, uh, that he had a low opinion of himself or had a deep down inferiority complex. Maybe he didn't. Most of us do because we realize on some level we're inferior, either to God or to others, or even to our own image of what we would like to be. Every one of us is certainly inferior to our image of where we would want to be. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. He began to recognize that there was a problem here that was not conduct, it was not necessarily evil thinking, but it was a, an assessment of himself that put him on a very high plane. I'm right. Now someone who says, I'm right, how do you get through that? And try as they might, these guys could not crack that because Job was a very, very right man or self-righteous man. Now, God had found no sin or evil in him in the beginning of the book because his actions were good. But he had an attitude deep ingrained that God wanted changed. And these men were having difficulty with it. Now, Elihu goes on for a while. And I'm not going to go through all of this for sake of time, but let's pick it up in chapter 37. I think we'll get the essence of it here. Otherwise, this could be a long series, but I want to get through it today. Let's pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 37 in Job. Hearken to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Now, Elihu is getting close to the problem here. All right, Job, we'll have to admit, you're, you're a pretty good guy. We probably wouldn't have been friends with you if you hadn't been. But, okay, we'll, we'll accept that. You're a good man. You're a righteous man. But maybe you don't consider God enough and what he is in comparison to what you are. Do you know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, which is perfect in knowledge? I can watch the clouds. Science can study the clouds. Where do they come from? Where do they go? Why do they show up? How much really do we know? How your garments are warm when he quiets the earth by the south wind. How do you stay warm? 
Have you with him spread out the sky which is strong and is a molten looking glass? How did the sky get there? And he goes on along those lines. Verse 23, touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice he will not afflict. Men do therefore fear him. He respects not any that are wise of heart. Now, that's put in a, a little bit awkward language in the King James. Does God disrespect wisdom? No. God, in fact, tells us all over and over that we need to gain wisdom. First seven books, chapters of Proverbs are about that, along with the rest of the book, for that matter. God does not respect any that are self-righteous, self-justifying, who think they are wise, who think they are smart. That's what he's trying to get across. Why is he making this comparison between God and Job? Because he said, God is a lot greater than you are, Job. You may be great, but and the only point I got left, the only thing I can say, is God is greater than you are. I can't prove there's anything wrong with you, but I'll, all I, that's, that's what I'm left with. God is greater than you. I don't think even then he was fully penetrating Job's attitude. Because when you're right, you're right. You know, just the way it is. There's my way and the highway, people will say. Or it is often said about them more than they say it themselves. We have trouble seeing ourselves as others see us many, many times. In fact, it's very difficult for us. Anyway, I think Elihu's last speech to Job may have softened him up somewhat. Elihu did not himself even have the true picture, as we're about to see, but at least he had primed him somewhat and shown him, hey, Job, let's talk about you being self-righteous then. You're as righteous as God. Is that what he's getting on to? Try telling someone they're self-righteous. How far will you get? Not very far. They don't want to hear it. Brethren, we all are. I am, you are. We want to be right. We will go to great lengths to establish that. All right? He's set up then to listen to God himself. Then the Eternal answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Your three friends have been here talking to you, Job. This has been going on and on and on, and they're not getting through. They don't have enough knowledge, enough understanding uh, to really help you see this problem. Who are these guys? Now the boss is going to talk to you. If you won't listen to anybody else, listen to me. And they don't have the knowledge that I have. Theirs is dark and cloudy by comparison to God's view. I think this is a matter of by comparison because many of the things that these fellows said over this whole book were indeed true. Some of them, maybe not, but some of them were indeed true. 
And they referred to the Almighty many times in their talks with Job. So they talked to Job about God, and yet there was something that could not be penetrated. Just would not hear, could not listen. Well, God himself then, if our friends, if our teachers can't get through to us, then perhaps God will. Now, he is the Almighty, and he is going to make every knee bend before him before this is done. One way or another, if it doesn't bend, it will get broken. I hope that we do not have to have God turned loose on us. The Eternal answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. All right, you've had answers for these guys. Everything they said, you had an answer for. Everything they said, you could say, oh, you're not right about that. Now, I want you to answer me. You better stand up like a man, and you better be ready to answer, because you're not dealing with three guys that want to help you anymore. You're dealing with God Almighty. Are you ready for this? <coughs> Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if you have understanding. What do you know about it? That's a good opening shot, isn't it? Can any of us say where we were when God created the earth? Can we say how he did it? He spoke and it existed. How can that be? If that's any preview of what's about to come, Job's in trouble here. Who laid the measures thereof, if you know? Who stretched the line upon it? Who surveyed it? Who laid it out? Who figured it out? Who determined how it would be? You know, if you suddenly learned the power of creativity but had no control over it, you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? Because you could start the creation process and it could run all kinds of different directions. So it had to have limits. It had to have a plan. Who could make such a plan? You can hire the best engineering office on earth and they can't lay out the heavens and the earth. Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? What keeps it anchored where it is? Why don't these planets just sort of fly around now that they're made? Can you answer that? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you when I did this and the angels had a party? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it had issued out of the womb? Have you stood on the beach and watched towering waves come in 30, 40, 50 feet high and gotten a little bit scared that they were going to just keep coming? I have. But you know what? In every case, they just stopped. They fell to the beach and went back out. Now, a tsunami can change that a little bit, but we're speaking in general terms of how the sea is anchored, what rules it goes by. These things are far bigger than any of us. But God is going to show who is the Almighty here. He may not use the term a whole lot, but he's showing 
by questions, who really is? This is a very important lesson for us, brethren. Not many people recognize the Almighty on the face of the earth today. They deny him. They say he's a spook or a phantom. They deny the power thereof. Accepting his name, but denying his power. That's in Romans, I think. Who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it had issued out of the womb? How many of you ladies were about to have a baby and you could stop that process? That's what he's saying. <laughs> it just happens, doesn't it? You can't stop it. It's going to happen. When I made the cloud the garment thereof and the thick darkness swaddling band for it and broke it up for my decreed place and set bars and doors... If there was a canopy of water above the earth, what held it up there? What rules? What did God have in place? Verse 11, and said, Here too shall you come, but no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Speaking of the ocean. Have you commanded the morning since your days, and caused the day spring to know his place? I might get up and observe sunrise, but I can't do anything about it. You know, it happens. It's there but it might take hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked might be shaken out of it. We'd like to be do a lot of things. We can't do anything about the wicked, can we? We can hardly do anything about our own wickedness, much less anybody else's in the world. It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. And from the wicked their light is withheld, and the high arm shall be broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or have you walked in the search of the depth? Have you gone down on the bottom of the ocean, checked out where the water comes out of the depths of the earth? Well, we've gotten down there with some submarines now in different parts, but there's still an awful lot down there they don't know about. They haven't figured out. They learn a little more as time goes on. <clears throat> and if you did know... What was happening down there? Could you stop it or do anything about it or alter it or change it? We, we are pretty small. Have the gates of death been opened to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? What about life and death and resurrection? What do you know about that? You know, there have been a lot of times I would have loved to have seen somebody resurrected. I can't do a thing about it. There have been a lot of times I didn't want to see anybody die. There wasn't a thing I could do about it. Put some oil on them, pray, and ask that God's will be done. And then his will is what counts, not yours, not mine. Have you perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if you know it all. What do you know really about the earth? Where is the way where light dwells? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? <clears throat> Can you fix or know how much do you know about light and dark? that you should take it to the bound thereof, and that you should know the paths to the house thereof. We, we can't even imagine, can we? I look out at the stars and you think, how far do they go? Where do they stop? Our mind requires finiteness. It requires there to be an end of it. Because we can't comprehend eternity in a never-ending space. I remember when I was a kid, I'd look at the stars and 
I'd think out there just as far as I could and strain my pea brain to think where it all must end. And you know, they're still discovering new galaxies everywhere. They're trying to plumb the depths and the breadth of the earth, I mean of the, uh, the heavens. And they can't do it. I used to, with my little mind, think, well, it can only go so far, and then there's a wall. Oh, okay, I'm happy with that. Oh, but what's on the other side of the wall? It's, it's never-ending. You can't imagine. It's beyond us. Verse 21, Know you it because you have been born, or because you were then born? Were you around, or because the numbers of your days is great? Have you lived forever? Answer me about eternity. That's another one that boggles the mind. God has always been. Can't get your mind around that. No beginning, no end. I've thought about it off and on over the years, and I give up. Can't figure that one out. Had to start somewhere, didn't he? No, always has been. Where were we? Verse 22, Have you entered into the treasures of the snow? Have you seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? There's a prophecy. What do you know about snow and hail, Job? I'm going to save the hail until the end. Remember the book of Revelation? It talks about 120-pound hailstones coming down. God's referring to that here. I mean, Job may have seen little hail or bigger hail. I've seen it as big as softballs in, at times in my life, but not 120 pounds. By what way is the light parted which scatters the east wind upon the earth? What, what is, how do you know how the sun affects the winds? <clears throat> and it does. comes up the canyons in the morning and down in the evening. Why? How does it work? Who has divided a water course for the overflowing of waters or a way for the lightning of thunder? I watched thunder and lightning in awe. Heard some thunder this morning, pretty loud. I stand in awe of it. Can I do anything about it? No, I just cower and wait to see if I get knocked down. It was on the news recently. A guy just had a hole-in-one in golf, and then he got struck for the second time by lightning. Twice in his life. What are the odds of that? Maybe he's read this, maybe he hasn't, but after having been struck twice and be still alive, I think I'd be wanting to find the off switch. He can't do anything about it. I can't, you can't. It's bigger than we are. We're beginning to see a little bit of a picture of the Almighty here, aren't we? What about rain? Verse 26. To cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste grounds, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. What does man have to do with it? It rains in the wilderness where there isn't anybody. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? Men are trying to control the weather. Maybe they're learning a few little things about it, but that's kind of scary in itself. But then they unleash some things that are bigger than they are. Who knows where that will lead? They might get us all in trouble. <clears throat> Verse 29, out of whose womb came the ice? 
and the hoary frost of heaven, who has gendered it? Did somebody give birth to ice? I don't think so. The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. We don't know much about that. We can say, well, there's global warning, warming, or the <laughs> warning too, yeah, and the Antarctic is, is opening up, but we can't control it or do anything about it. We don't really know what's going on. These things have happened before. Can you bind the sweet influence of Pleiades, which actually picture the seven churches, according to Bullinger, or loose the bands of Orion? Can you bring forth Maseroth in his season? What, what can you do about the order of the stars and the courses they go through? Can you guide Arcturus with his sons? Know you the ordinances of heaven? Can you set the dominion thereof in the earth? Can you stand down here and control what goes on out there and all those stars? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that abundance of waters may cover you? No. All we can do is just be thankful when a thunderstorm does hit us like today. But we can't do anything about it. Can you send lightnings that they may go and say to them, Here we are, don't hit us. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who has given understanding to the heart? We have a lot of different emotions that go through our hearts and minds, don't we? Most people have trouble controlling their emotions to one degree or another. All people do. We can be faint of heart. We can become bitter of heart. Esau got bitter. And he sought repentance with tears. Couldn't overcome it. Don't ever let a root of bitterness get started in you. Bitterness is based on self-righteousness, is what it's based on. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to be angry about it until the anger turns to bitterness. And Esau's bitterness is still there to this day, and they're going to have a very high part or a, a major portion of destroying this nation of Jacob. That bitterness has lasted through the DNA, through the genes, generation after generation after generation, and it's still there. That's how deep or how deeply embedded that bitterness was in Esau, and it has been passed along even to his great-grandchildren, what, how many times removed? All these generations. What do we know about the seed of emotions? We struggle to control our own, and yet... Some of those emotions and attitudes go all the way back. Not just Esau. What about Israel? And what God said would happen to the various sons of Israel. What their attitudes would be. What their attitudes toward their brothers in the end time would be. God could read all that in the genetic DNA structure of those 12 men. And what we would be today. Ishmael the same way. A wild ass of a man. God described what Ishmael would be today, way back then. How much of that can science comprehend? They don't even scratch the surface.
Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or who has given understanding to the heart? Verse 36. <clears throat> who can number the clouds in wisdom, or who can stay the bottles of heaven? When the dust grows into hardness and the clods cleave fast together, we're stuck down here with whatever God gave us. He cursed the land after Adam and Eve's disobedience, and it's still cursed, and there's not anything we can really do about it. They're trying to play with the weather and make it rain where it doesn't rain. Maybe they're having very, very limited success, but they can't change what God has done. Only He can remove the curse at the beginning of the millennium and cause this earth to be a peaceful, wonderful place to live again, which he has promised he will do. What do you know about how to fix that and turn this world into a Garden of Eden again? I believe he's going to do it with a small group of people even before Christ returns in glory and show the rest of the world what can be done. And they will hate it with a passion. You'd think they'd welcome that, wouldn't you? No, they won't. They're not ready to accept the Almighty. That's what it all boils down to. Will you hunt the prey for the lion or feel the appetite of the young lions? Do you know all the ins and outs of the animals and the symbiotic relationships where one cannot live without the other and all those things that we covered on the broadcast years ago, when they couch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait. Who provides for the raven his food? When his young ones cry to God, they wander for lack of meat. How does a bird go out and find food? How does it, how does that work? That it knows to do that and then takes it back and feeds it to its babies. What an incredible thing that that bird is born or hatched and grows up and mates and they have babies. After the eggs hatch, they automatically start feeding them. Now a raven, by nature, is a bird of prey. Or at least not, not a bird of prey as such. They usually eat stuff that's already dead, although I've seen them kill chickens recently. But if they feed on things that are helpless or dead, why don't they just eat their babies? What controls that tiny little bird brain and causes it to do what it does? Fascinating. Fascinating. <clears throat> Chapter 39. Know you the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or can you mark when the hinds do calves? Well, we can study nature and we can realize that fawns of deer are born late May, early June in this country. We can see when, but we sure don't know what regulates the cycle, do we? How can we explore that? What causes the bucks to ignore the girls all year long and then suddenly in November they take an interest and five months later there's fawns on the ground? What an incredible cycle. We can watch it. We can't regulate it or do anything about it. It's bigger than we are. Can you number the months that they fulfill or know that you the time when they bring forth? And he's talking more about than just knowing the cycle. He's saying, how, how does this work? How does it happen? They bow themselves. They bring forth their young ones. They cast out their sorrows. 
<coughs> the pain of carrying the fawns around, and they're cast out on the ground, thump. Their young ones are in good liking. They grow up with corn. They go forth and return not to them. They grow up and depart from their mothers and fathers and <coughs> start their own generation. What an incredible cycle. Who has sent out the wild ass free? Who has loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings? I can hardly understand sometimes when I drive through desert areas and see wild donkeys out there, burros, and there's no water source apparent, but they seem to live and thrive out there and do fine. How? It's incredible what God has made. Verse 7, he scorns the multitude of the city, neither regards he the crying of the driver. He's his own sovereign out there. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Will the unicorn be willing to serve you or abide by your crib? There are some animals that uh, are independent, and you can't do anything about it. Can you bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after you? There are some animals like the ox that you can cause to plow and train them to do it, there's some animals who just wouldn't do that. Gave you the goodly wings to the peacocks. I can admire the peacock when he spreads his fan tail out. It's, oh, incredibly beautiful. Now, if you pull all those feathers out and look, he's got a just kind of an ugly pink little behind like most any other behind. What causes those beautiful feathers to grow out of that ugly little pink thing? Maybe I'm putting this crudely, but how can that happen? But it does. Our wings and feathers to the ostrich, ostrich, which leaves her eggs in the earth and warms them in dust, and forgets that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She just lays her eggs and covers them up with dirt and goes on her way. Turtles do the same thing. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear. Ostriches aren't nearly as pretty as peacocks. They're kind of ugly and stupid, uh, apparently, and just cover up their eggs and leave. What caused her nature to be different than the peacock or anything else. Because God has deprived her of wisdom, neither has he imparted to her understanding. She's not like a normal bird. She's different. Can you explain the difference of why one bird brain works so much differently than another bird brain? No. I mean, if you take their heads apart and you examine the brains... You can't really tell the difference of why this one works this way and that one works that way. God has all those keys. He knows. He designed it. It's all gray matter. It all looks about the same. Monkey brains and human brains look very, very similar when you take them out of the bone casing. But they're really different, aren't they? Monkeys grow tails and jump up and down in trees and eat bananas. We walk around on the earth. We do things a lot differently than the monkey world. But the brains look similar. 
God gave them opposing thumbs and they scare us to death. Because some idiot is going to think that we're kin to them. No, just the same creator that did some things alike. It's incredible. Are they going to give credit to God? I don't think so. Uh, verse 18, speaking still of the ostrich, what time she lifts herself on high, she scorns a horse and his rider. Uh, ostriches you don't really control that much. They're independent. They do their own thing. And they can disembowel a man, and they can do damage to a horse. So they don't care about horses and riders. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder, the power of a horse? Can you make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. A horse trained in war, better be afraid of him. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes on to meet the armed men without fear. He mocks at fear and is not affrighted. Neither turns he back from the sword, just dashes on in. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear in the shield. He swallows the ground with fierceness and rage. Neither believes he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He says among the trumpets, Ha ha! And he smells the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. The horse is trained and he gets excited and wants to go into war. The man riding him may be scared half to death, but the horse just thunders in there like he owned the place. Verse 26, Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? I've marveled sitting and watching hawks soaring and gliding and back and forth, diving on an animal occasionally. I can't figure out how that all works. Does the eagle mount up at your command and make her nest on high? Do you control or are you able to control in any way her habits? No. She dwells and abides on the rock upon the crag of the rock in the strong place. From there she seeks the prey and her eyes behold far off. Her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is she. She'll pick over the battlefield and claw out chunks of flesh with her beak and take them to her children who will eat that flesh and blood of man. We can't control her, but she can eat us when we're dead. Moreover, the Eternal answered Job and said, Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? We contend with God, don't we? We reason back and forth on our own logic, try to justify certain actions and thoughts that we might have and make them okay when they're not, don't we? Can you really instruct the Almighty? Our little reasoning powers of trying to justify something we might want to think or do that isn't right. We can go through all kinds of machinations to deceive ourselves and deny that the Almighty has the answers. He that reproves God, let him answer it. You know, when you really get down to it, it is just self-justification and self-righteousness. We can't do away with anything God has made. He set it up a certain way, and that's just the way it is. And the quicker we admit it and accept it, the better off we're going to be. Then Job answered the eternal. He listened to this whole thing. Had to be pretty impressive. 
And he said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. I don't have a thing to say. God got through to him, or at least began to. He couldn't answer any of these things. They were far beyond him. Now maybe his conduct and his thinking had been good, and yet he still did not realize the vast difference between himself and God. <clears throat> Put his hand on his mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Eternal to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man. I will demand of you and declare you to me. So God says, I just gave you a pretty good little speech here, and you said you're vile, but I still don't think you're quite getting it, Job. You're seeing that there is a difference. You're seeing that I have questions that you can't answer, but you still don't realize fully that I am the Almighty. We're not done here yet. It takes a series of trials, of tests, of lessons, of discussions for us to begin to grasp who the Almighty is. Verse 8. Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? There, there's, well, I've already kind of discussed that, our self-justifications, where we can begin to think our way is better than God's way. Because, after all, I have my wants, and I have my needs, and I have my emotions, and I want to fulfill them my way, not God's way. Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like Him? A voice of many waters in Revelation 1? Don't think so. Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency. Array yourself with glory and beauty. Rise up. Get as pretty and as handsome as you can get. Adorn yourself with everything you can put on. Look just as handsome as you can possibly get on this earth. And then compare yourself to me, God says. You know, we dress ourselves up to impress people whether it be other men or other women or a cross-sex thing or whatever, we try to look our best, look as good as we can. We want to look better than others if possible, so there's always the comparison. God says, all right then, you want to compare? Compare yourself to me. Put on your finest and let's get it on here in this fashion show. That's what God's proposing. Verse 11, cast abroad the rage of your wrath, and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. You know, we might see vanity, ego, and pride, and it may be distasteful to all of us, but what can we do about it? Can we fix it? Go out there in the world and see if you can fix that problem. <laughs> Can't even fix it in ourselves. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. You're going to save yourself? 
You know, every one of us goes through a process down here on this earth. We're born, and then we begin to age. And we do all kinds of things with various chemicals and surgery and everything we can to at least look young, even though we're not. And we age anyway. And then we die. And we can't do a thing about it. It is a process God started. You can't do anything about it. That's where you're headed. Can you save yourself? Maybe we better look to the Almighty. He's the only one that can. Verse 15, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with you, he eats grass as an ox. Now, apparently there were still dinosaurs around at that time. Monstrous beasts. I, Kent Hovind at least thinks that there's still a few in equatorial Africa and maybe the Amazon basin. Hard to know, but uh, they did exist. I picked up a piece of dinosaur bone just a few days ago. They were here. I've got a mammoth tusk that came from Alaska, dug out of a glacier. Some of those huge animals have been there for a long time, and when the ice thaws, the wolves still eat the meat. And it is actually palatable if you wanted to eat it for a human being. It wouldn't kill you. It's still that fresh. How did that happen? He eats grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. Now compared to a little human being, six, seven feet tall, uh, we're not much. You've seen Jurassic Park, I suspect. Scary stuff. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach to him. You're kind of helpless against a beast like this, but God can approach him. No problem for him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinks up a river and hastes not. He goes to drink, and he doesn't worry. He can stand there and drink as long as he wants. That's not true of an impala or other beasts, antelope and so on, that come down to the rivers and the lakes in Africa to drink. They approach very timidly, and they take a quick drink and jump back to look because they don't know when a crocodile is just going to come right up out of the water and grab them and pull them in. This fellow here doesn't even worry about it. He just goes down there and says, I'm going to drink myself a river. Behold, he drinks up a river and hastes not. He trusts that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. I can do anything I want, he says. You can't stop me. He takes it with his eyes. His nose pierces through snares. You can set a snare for him. He'll just break it and go right on through it. I had a salmon that one time I thought could catch salmon, and it was catching reds pretty good, five, six, seven, eight pounders, even a few kings. And then I found a place where a king salmon had made a hole that big and just went right on through. Caught a 70-pounder in it. He didn't quite make it through. 
He just treated it like that net, like it wasn't even there. I don't know how big he was, but he went right on through. You going to set a snare big enough to stop this fellow here? I don't think so. You can't control him. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? You can catch fish. Make yourself a hook big enough to bring this fellow into the boat, to sink the boat. Or his tongue with a cord which you let down. Can you put a hook in his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak soft words to you? He'll wipe you out. Now you can train elephants if you get them early enough and work at it where they'll do chores for mankind. But have you ever faced an elephant out in the wild who didn't like you? I was sitting in a car and had one razor trunk roar at me and make a few steps like she was coming. Man, I hit the clutch as fast as I could. I wasn't about to deal with her. I saw a little car right there at Kruger Park that there were holes in that big where they had just simply gored the thing all the way through and took their hooves and, or their feet and smashed down the top. And the Germans inside were affrighted. They lived in that case, but they sat like this till somebody came and opened the can opener for them. Point is, there is an Almighty, and we aren't it. Who do we think we are? Will you play with him as with a bird, verse 5, or will you bind him for your maidens, make a pet for your daughters? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? So it goes on about the Leviathan. I don't know that we have to read all of this for sake of time, but he goes on and on about it uh, down to, well, let's, let's pick it up again in verse 26. The sword of him that lays at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergon. He esteems iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Maybe today we could kill them with mortars or something, but given the weapons of that day, this physical beast was more than they could handle. <coughs> and today we marvel if we look at their carcasses and bones lying there and what kind of a beast was that. Darts are counted as stubble. He laughs at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreads sharp pointed things upon the mire. He makes the deep to boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He makes a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear, utterly fearless of man and beast. He beholds all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Now there was a beast like that, and I wonder if God is not in analogy also saying Satan's like that too in the angelic world. He is the king of the children of pride or humans who lift themselves up. So I think there is an analogy there that could fit of even the physical things that are bigger than we are. And he may be even throwing a jab at Satan, who is the one who instituted all of this at God's direction on Job. 
And he's showing not only Job, but he's also is showing Satan, I am the Almighty. There is none that can stand before me, physical or spirit. What a lesson in the book of Job if we as human beings would just listen. All right, end of that speech. Then Job answered the Eternal and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. Job hadn't really thought all these things through. See why God says in Romans 1 that we see him through the things of the creation? What did God do? He simply pointed out the many, many things that he had done that Job could not do or even understand how to do or even understand how they worked. And the fact that they were there proved that there was something far greater than Job. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I under, uttered that I understood not. He nor his three friends could describe the picture that we've just read here, that God wrote down for us. And he's refer referring to us here in spots, isn't he? When he says, I've reserved this hail for the end time. He's projecting this forward to today and what we are about to experience on this earth. So the lesson is here not just for Job, but it's for here for those upon whom the 120-pound hailstones will fall when the sun gets seven times hotter and everything gets really, really bad on the face of this earth. It's coming soon. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Verse 4, Here I beseech you, and I will speak. I will demand of you and declare you to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees. We've all heard about God, haven't we? We've all read about God in the Bible. We've all looked around at nature and seen a certain amount of the work of God. But can we go through life with those words, those thoughts in our mind, and still not really comprehend the might and the power and the expanse of Almighty God. I think that that is very possible, because Job was as righteous as any man has been, other than Christ himself. In fact, isn't it Jeremiah's at Ezekiel that talks about if Job and Daniel and Moses, I guess it was, were there. They could only save themselves. They couldn't answer for any of us. So Job is listed as one of the most righteous men that ever walked. And yet he had a problem in that even he did not see Almighty God for what he is. The might and the power that is really there. So he abhorred himself and repented in dust and ashes. Uh, in verse 6. So the self-righteousness began to be stripped away. He had compared himself with other men and felt pretty good about himself because he was right and they had their faults. But he hadn't stopped to really compare himself to God. 
Verse 7, And it was so that after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, the Eternal said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. Even they who had tried to instruct Job didn't really get it. And even after maybe hearing the things that God said to Job, they still didn't get it, but Job did. So his anger was kindled at them for sitting and listening and not hearing. Is it possible for all of us to sit and consider these words and yet go away not having heard, not having learned, not having gotten the point? Is that possible? Where has your mind been for the last hour? Has it been focused right here? Have you been getting it? Has it been wandering off other places? Did you catch a nice nap? Did we get it? Am I wasting my time reading God's words to us? Or do we begin to see the Almighty in a way we haven't before? God put these words here so that we might. It is possible to hear it and think you understand it and yet not get it. Why? Because by nature we are deceitful and we are self-righteous and we just don't get it. Quite a few men spent three and a half years with Christ himself and just didn't get it. The Holy Spirit made the difference finally. It is possible to hear and not perceive. So he then told them to go make themselves a sacrifice. And he said, you have not spoken of me in the end of verse 8, the things which is right, like my servant Job. Job finally envisioned, he finally got the picture of God the way God wants to be perceived and thought of. And he abhorred himself. The self-righteousness was stripped away when compared to God. That's why it says in the New Testament, it is not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. And isn't that the basic comparison that most people, nearly all people, dare I say all people use? We compare ourselves among ourselves. And we hold ourselves up because we figure, I may not be much, but at least I'm better than you. That is the deplorable human state. So we have to take it higher and compare ourselves with God in order to be truly humbled, because I don't care who we are, we can find ways to make ourselves and our eyes look better than those who are around us. We're right, they're wrong. Very dangerous thinking. You all heard it, but you didn't get it the way Job got it. So they went, offered sacrifices, but God accepted Job, and the Eternal turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Eternal gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then it talks about all the blessings that he did give him back. 
Now, we can pray for each other self-righteously. God help that poor sinner see himself for what he really is. And it is, a God, it is a prayer that God will not hear nor answer because it is spoken in comparison of one against the other with the attitude in mind that I'm better than you are, but I will pray for you anyway. Because in my great august correctness, I can pray for you and I know God hears me and therefore you'll be taken care of. Even prayer can be an abomination if we're not careful of our attitude. Esau's prayers were an abomination to God, even though he sought repentance carefully with tears. His heart was not right. And he compared himself with his brother Jacob. Instead of thanking God for what little blessing he did have, he compared himself and put Jacob down and is going to do his utmost and succeed here in the end time in destroying Jacob because his heart was not right and still isn't. So it's the heart, the real attitude that counts. We can even pray with an attitude of vengeance and revenge and deceive ourselves that we think we're doing it in righteousness. That's what Job did, and that's what his friends did. And then God opened the curtains on the stage of the universe, and Job suddenly said, Oh, doesn't do any good to compare myself to other people. I see something far bigger than I am. I repent and abhor myself. I'm so very, very human and weak and base. And the deception was removed. The self-rightness was gone. He saw true righteousness, not his own brand of righteousness. And God did honor and respect that. So we have to remove our self-deception. And we have to look at the Almighty and understand. Are we getting a bit of a vision and understanding maybe better than we had of why God would use the Almighty 57 times in the Bible, and 31 of them were here. Because he had a man who was close, didn't he? He had a man who was obedient. He had a man who did things right. He had a man who was upright, who had good character. Hard to ask for anybody better than that. But he still had a severe problem. And God, through Satan, and then with his own testimony, cracked that. Job was a tough nut to crack. How hard will you be to crack? Do you need to lose your health, your wealth, your family, everything, and sit on the ground in boils, so miserable you can't think straight? And then have, in all that, Satan attacking you directly. And then God chewing you a whole new world on top of that. It took a lot for Job to see his problem. He could see Eli Faz's and Eli Hughes and his friend's problem. 
He could not see his own problem. Now, I venture to say there is none here anywhere near as righteous as Job to begin with. And look the extremes that had to be taken to crack that nut. I hope none of us are going to be that tough. I hope that through the Holy Spirit, in sincere, deep, introspective, prevailing prayer and fasting, we can begin to see ourselves as God sees us, not as we have seen ourselves and others see us, but as God does. And if we can grasp the term, the Almighty, we're getting close to be ready to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow.